0: The security clearance process is complicated. Maybe you find yourself applying for a position with the national security community and then finding yourself with questions you don't know how to answer. Maybe you've held an active security clearance for decades and now find yourself wondering if you need to report that DUI or if your bankruptcy will be flagged under the new continuous vetting program. Security clearance policies are changing and it can be hard to keep up. Whether you're a security clearance applicant, defense industry hiring manager, or government agency, it's okay to have questions. We have the answers. Welcome to Security Clearance Insecurity on Federal News Radio. Brought to you by your hosts, Lindy Kaiser of ClearanceJobs.com and Sean Bigley.
1: Hi, this is Lindy Kaiser with ClearanceJobs.com, and welcome to this episode of Security, Clearance, and Security on Federal News Radio. Today, we are chatting with Laura Nelson. Laura is the president and CEO of the National Cryptologic Foundation. They have a goal to educate, engage, and commemorate. Under that umbrella, they have a few things that they're celebrating this fall that we wanted to chat with a little bit more today. So thank you so much, Laura, for taking the time to be on the show.
2: Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.
1: So the National Cryptologic Foundation, it's even for folks who are kind of in this industry or community, I think unless you've worked for the NSA, the notion of code breaking, cryptography, the fact that there is this cryptologic foundation might not be clear to a lot of folks. So can you just kind of introduce the organization for folks who have not heard of you before? A little bit of history and some of the key goals that you kind of are working on and working toward today.
2: So originally the National Cryptologic Foundation was incorporated as the National Cryptologic Museum Foundation. It was initiated at the request of the then NS National Security Agency Director, Lieutenant General Ken Minahan, and Major General Johnny Morrison founded the foundation. The purpose originally was to require artifacts for the the museum, which was new at that time, and to provide financial. Financial support for its programs and displays, things that you couldn't use federal money to support. Over the years, the mission has broadened significantly beyond the museum. While we still do support the museum, but we do a lot of other things as well. And as a result, we changed our name in 2020 to the National Cryptologic Foundation. Our primary mission is to strengthen trust in the digital ecosystem, ensure democracy and freedom through education, engagement, and commemoration. So, you know, hitting those three things, the commemoration is still an important part of what we do. We have some robust partnerships, especially with the National Security Agency, and we try to find innovative ways to build a future cyber and cryptologic workforce and in with government, industry, academia, and the public to explore cyber and cryptologic topics and to mitigate related threats.
1: Okay, so you just kind of teed to my next question a little bit. We're kind of talking about stakeholders. So as a foundation... I know you recently had an event that was targeting young people and kind of talking about cyber careers for young people. I know you do a lot of partnerships with the educational community. Who are some of the other folks who should know about the Cryptologic Foundation or folks that you're primarily working with?
2: Well, as you mentioned, we do work quite a bit with public and private educators and youth from the ages 11 to 21. And with other nonprofits such as TeeP Cyber, who helped work with us to co-create the cybersecurity curriculum guidelines. And Teach Cyber has gone on to create a year-long high school cybersecurity curriculum, which is free to administrators and educators. We do work quite a bit with various school systems, including in the state of Maryland. And I'd say, you know, for that education piece of it, that is our, our primary audience. We recently held an event with Cyber Saturday, which allowed current rising and fifth through ninth graders to learn a bit more about cyber. Data care and staying safe online through some hands-on experiences. And in doing that, we worked with an organization, Dreamport, to do that. And their engineers helped create some of these games for the kids to get hands-on experience. And this was all based on our Outsmart Cyber Threats Collection, which is a series of booklets that really introduce kids into how to be cyber smart and safe. The other place that we really get involved is with the state. We hope to do this more on a national level, but starting in the state of Maryland, we've worked quite a bit with legislators to advocate for cyber-related bills. In the most recent session, General Assembly session, as a result of our advocacy, along with a lot of others who helped with that, the state provided funding for Cyber Maryland, which is just getting off the ground. And it's going to serve as a workforce accelerator to accelerator to fill a multitude of jobs that are out there and open in the state and as well as across the nation. So those are some of our you know, primary stakeholders and in the, in the education piece. But we also work with other federal agencies, which we can get into a little bit more as we go along.
1: Okay. Oh, yeah. Once again, that's a great segue because I know that when you think of cryptography, code breaking, you tend to think NSA. But are there other government agencies that you regularly work
2: with or partner with? Yeah, so our primary partner is definitely the National Security Agency, and we have a memorandum of agreement with them that focuses primarily on two things. The one is working on education and working with them on their academic outreach programs and how do we how do we reach youth, you know, starting in middle school all the way up through college and help to get them engaged and interested in these careers. But the other part of what we want to do with them is, to launch a series of what we'll call convening to act, where we will engage with the public, working with academia, private industry, NSA, and other government agencies to bring topics of interest to the public, things that they really need to know about that are related to national security, but affect them in their daily lives. Um, The first that will come off the block is gonna be about quantum resistant cryptography, which you hear quite about in the news these days. The other organizations that we would work with are CISA and then the National Institute of Standards. This is all related to some of the same work, as well as NICE, which is part of NIST.
1: So I want to talk a little bit about cocktails and code breakers. I love this event. I love some good alliteration. Now, you did it for the first time last year, and I think you're doing it again this year. So kind of talk about this event, this partnership. I know you work with the Intelligence and National Security Foundation. What is it? What can folks expect? Maybe why should they attend this event that you're hosting?
2: Yeah, so we're really excited about our second annual Cocktails and Code Breakers event. It will be on October 11th from 5 to 7 p.m., at the Hotel at Arundel Preserve in Hanover, Maryland. Uh, that's a really nice venue. They, they did a fabulous job in helping us with that last year. This year, we have two featured speakers. First is the Honorable Ronald Moultrie, who is the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence and Security. And we are also very pleased to have General Paul Nakasone, the Director of National Security of the National Security Agency, and we'll have them both as featured speakers. We have this event to allow allow us to honor and celebrate men and women in cryptology. Our first one, we really focused on the women code breakers as it coincided with the U.S. Postal Service release of a special with the women cryptologists from World War II forever stamp that was released last year. But this year, we're broadening it to celebrate all of us who have worked in that field over the years. As you mentioned, we do co-host this program with the Intelligence and National Security Foundation. Tickets can be purchased going to our website, which is cryptologicfoundation.org. I know that's a mouthful. <laughs> or they can call our office at 443-795-4498. The early bird tickets are $150. Until September 12th. And um, on September 13th, the price will rise to $189. That's on social media. We're on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, X, formerly Twitter.
1: I know that one's a mouthful, man. I can't, I still can't get it. You know, everybody says X, formerly known as Twitter. I just don't know how long. I don't know. They got something going there. We'll we'll, we'll see. Yeah. So I love events like this because it does give a lot of opportunities for, I mean, you mentioned, you know, the government leaders that are going to be there in attendance, but kind of can you even speak to last year, like kind of who are some of the attendees that come? Is it, you know, what kind of, what can you expect from the audience in terms of networking and, you know, being able to interact with other folks in this space? So
2: we saw a lot of our industry leaders attend from the various companies that, do a lot of work with the National Security Agency. We had quite a few NSA employees attend. Some of them were invited guests, but others bought tickets to attend. A lot of our NSA and NSA retirees are really interested in attending these types of events. So we see some of those as well. We had several of our state legislators attend last year. We're really happy to have that. Yeah, I just think, you know, depending on what the interest of the people are, you kind of get a, a little bit of everybody, but everybody has some level of in the you know the mission of NSA and code making code breaking and that whole cryptologic mission area.
1: Yeah, no, I love that. I think events like this are a great opportunity because as we don't get all of those stakeholders together in in one room unless we have an event like this and kind of an opportunity to socialize but also talk about important topics and and learn a little bit more. I think that's always always a great thing. Um, so cryptography code breaking. I want to talk a little bit about this because there's a cool factor there, but definitely also an old school factor. So I think one of the things that people are surprised about is, you know, obviously have this key partnership with the NSA, because we still need code breakers and cryptographers. And a lot of what we're doing in the cyber realm actually kind of overlaps with that. So do you think people realize what those career opportunities look like? And kind of how do we unpack this whole notion of cryptography, code breaking with the modern security and intelligence missions that we're trying to fill?
2: I think it is misunderstood and those opportunities aren't, you know, the, the general public doesn't realize what kind of jobs are out there. I have to be honest, in my NSA career, I did work as the deputy of the cryptanalysis organization, which was just fascinating. What a fascinating job it was because my background is an engineer and having the ability to work with these mathematicians and these brilliant minds who are, you know, solving some of our hardest problems was a real, was an honor and a privilege for me. But I think the thing that people need to understand is, uh, you know, cryptography is fundamental. It's a key building block to making the internet secure. Everything we do every day has some level of cryptography in it. And I think the public needs to understand why that's so important, because this is how you protect the confidentiality of your information. And encryption is the only way to ensure that your data is secure while while being stored and transmitted. So the career opportunities span quite a bit, right? You could be somebody who is a mathematician working to develop encryption protocols, but that then spans to the larger cyber-related fields. According to CyberSeek.org, over 660,000 unfilled cybersecurity jobs exist in the U.S. We need to fill those jobs. It's important for all aspects of our national commerce, our national security, 100,000 of those unfilled jobs are in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia alone. So just think of how many jobs are out there. We just can't find the people to fill. So one of our areas of focus for the, the foundation is to build awareness of the variety of pathways, And particularly for non-degree programs and non-traditional avenues for 11 to 18-year-olds to pursue and how they might get into the field, help the educators, counselors, underserved populations, and employers find a way to fill these jobs and find these candidates.
1: No, I love that. and I love that you mentioned, you know, kind of looking at untraditional backgrounds, non-traditional candidates and how we can apply that because there is so much of kind of a a problem solving capacity that you can really upskill and retrain and get folks once they kind of kind of start looking at this problem from a different angle so yeah you mentioned that like the you know the notion of like encryption is incredibly important you know we talk about protecting the information that we have and that is you know that's basically cryptography is what we're looking at so we kind of we don't use that term but i think more and more we know the need to protect our information and it's going to take this special skill set protect them. I'm wondering if I can apply my capacity for escape rooms as, and pretend and put it on my resume and say that I can have code breaking skills. I love the work that you're doing, you know, working with different populations, trying to get young people engaged, trying to get the senior leader, you know, aspect engaged. You know, any other takeaways, folks, you would want folks to know about the National Cryptologic Foundation, things that they should look forward to and expect to hear from you in the months to come?
2: Sure. We have a couple of things that are coming up. Season two of our Cyber Chats podcast series is launching on Thursday, September 14th. And this podcast exposes youth to cybersecurity concepts, opportunities and careers through conversations with industry professionals and youth in the cyber community. You'd be amazed at how many youth are already involved in this work and launching their own careers, even, you know, as young as, you know, 13 or 14 years old. We also have a game we're going to launch, which is NCF-sponsored development of two computer-based cybersecurity-themed games designed for middle, a middle school audience. And then we do have a, one other uh, two other events coming up. We have a golf tournament, Crypto Cup, that's going to come up in October as well. And in November, we're going to be the co-host of the National Cybersecurity awards program. That will be on November 16th. Awesome. I, mean, I think this is a critical moment. I think we have such a need for more
1: folks to be able to fill these positions. The government has a lot of amazing opportunities. So sometimes it's like translating that gap. And I really appreciate the work of the National Cryptologic mm-hmm. Foundation helping to kind of communicate even more. And again, just creating all of those on-ramps for young people, for you know, folks to be engaged in this community to learn more about these missions. Because we know over at Clearance Jobs, there's a, there's a lot of jobs to fill. So how do you kind of convey the excitement around it um, and keep the interest going? And you have a, a lot going on to do that. So thank you so much, Laura, for taking the time to be on the show. I really appreciate it.
2: And thank you, Lindy, for supporting our events and getting our message out there to the public.
1: Check out the National Cryptologic Foundation, folks. They have a lot of stuff going on. And if you have an interest in cyber or if you're a parent, who's trying to get your kids engaged in this. I love that they have resources in that area too. So check it
0: out. Join the Homeland Security Experts Group for the third annual Homeland Security Enterprise Forum, October 9th and 10th at the Omni Shoreham Hotel. HF23 will focus on advancing the enterprise through the adoption of current and emerging technology to make America more secure and prosperous. HSEF is attended by senior government officials, private sector executives, and thought leaders from across the nation. More information and registration are available at www.hsenterpriseforum.org. need to hire security clear professionals reach the largest collection of cleared candidates with clearancejobs.com clear professionals trust the privacy and security of clearance jobs career network along with federal agencies and more than a thousand intelligence and defense contractors features like intellisearch workflow and meetings make it easy to build relationships pipeline and automate the recruiting process while slashing time to hire Get more information and learn how you can connect with top cleared candidates at clearancejobs.com.
3: You're listening to Security Clearance in Security. I am Sean Bigley and I'm here with Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com. We're talking this segment about ageism in security clearance adjudications. And Lindy, I don't know about you, but as I get older, I, I start to appreciate or understand a bit this whole ageism thing. At the ripe old age of 37, I, I know it's uh, maybe a, a little hard hard for you to swallow there, but it, it is true. I'm, I'm starting to feel it in my bones, the the age creeping in. Uh, and it's it's not, not the same getting out of a pool as it was uh, 15 years ago. So I think I, I'm starting to empathize somewhat with the older crowd. But nonetheless, I do think this is something that is a real issue for people in various situations, particularly with drug use. And we've seen it time and time again. I know you've seen this come up in Doha cases, for example, where you know the administrative judge will kind of hammer somebody for their poor judgment and and often the the focal point of that discussion is their age. and oh, they should have known better. so, I'm curious now that you're older and wiser. We won't tell anybody your age, but what is the sense that you have about ageism and adjudications?
1: I feel like watch yourself, Sean. I feel like you're trying to <laughs> comment on how much older I am than you, <laughs> Sean. I am a, uh, I am an old woman. I look terrible today. The people can't see. It's because I went for a run. That's what keeps me young. Is it makes me look terrible afterwards. But see, but yeah, no, I'm I'm older and I'm old. But I, <laughs> I talk about the ageism in the security clearance process. I've actually written about this though. Because I get a ton of questions about what it's like to be a woman working in the defense industry. Having worked at the Pentagon and you know served in different roles, I got asked a lot if there was gender discrimination within the military. And I, that actually wasn't my personal experience. I think everybody has different experiences. But what I said from the get-go is there was absolutely gray hair discrimination in the Pentagon, i.e. if you didn't have any yet, they were not going to take you very seriously. So there was a lot of And I think we have this cult of experience around the defense industry, and you can see that. So if you have experience, that's certainly favored. What you mentioned is literally the crosshairs of that around the security clearance process is that they certainly expect you to know better once you have some gray hairs. So it's always interesting reading the Doha cases that they actually list out your age, your marital status, some personal details, sometimes some really obscure ones, probably which people are volunteering as a part of this process. But things that you might not necessarily consider relevant and I think it's because we do have this whole person concept. So they're looking at the, the t- totality of your life and circumstances and saying, hey, you know, what about your personal experience and personhood could have led to this situation resulting in your security clearance, denial and revocation? And as you said, it's a lot easier to m- mitigate stupid life choices Around just about every adjudicative criteria. We see it around alcohol, you know, if it's a college alcohol issue versus a 20 year alcohol abuse situation. If it's financial, you know, situations, a lot of military service members will use kind of the deployment card or the I was, you know, serving the military, making some poor life choices. If you're a defense contractor who's been working for 30 years, that's like a little bit harder of a card to play. So, yeah, I'd love to get even you know, more insight in your experience around that. But that is my understanding based on reading the cases, is that age is going to be a factor in the security clearance process. It will help you in terms of your career viability in a lot of cases, because the government does like people with experience it will hurt you if you do something dumb and are looking at losing your security clearance because they expect you to know better at that point.
3: Yeah, it's funny. It is a double-edged sword for sure. It's much like in the legal industry. I mean, you know, there's an old joke that people hire lawyers with gray hair and it's it's very true. Now, I have no hair at this point left. So I that's not an issue for me. And I I also did most of my work when I was practicing remotely. So most of my clients had no idea how old I was. So I think that also helped. But yeah, I mean, it, it does cut both ways. I always think about this in the context, whenever I hear this word ageism, one of my favorite movies of all time, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and the and the scene where he famously opines that isms are not good. And I agree completely. There There are very few, if any, isms that I can think about that are good. And ageism is certainly one of them. And, you know, yes, it it may be viewed as discriminatory. Certainly in other contexts, you know, it would be, right? I mean, you know, in the private sector and in hiring generally, you know, you can't discriminate against somebody because of their age. Just like, by the way, you can't discriminate against somebody for having perhaps a mental health condition in many states and in many job descriptions. The federal government's different. If you have a mental health condition that impedes your ability to protect classified information then you can be denied a clearance and that's something that's going to generally withhold scrutiny in a court. And so ageism is the same way. The government is entitled to consider somebody's age and experience or lack thereof to determine whether or not they should have known better with whatever it was that they're doing. So it can be an aggravating factor, certainly. We, I've seen cases over the years where somebody has tried marijuana for the first time when they're in their 50s. And they've held a clearance for 25 years, and the government says one and done. You're, we think you have terrible judgment, and you should have known better. And adios. And it's like astounding to the person. Hey, I tried it once. You know, I've seen cases on the other hand where somebody's coming into the government. They've tried every drug under the sun and dozens of times, but it was when they were in college, and now they're 25, and they've had a few years under their belt. It passes muster. So, you know, there is really a disparity here, I think, particularly in the case of drug use, but also, you know, to your point, just judgment generally, like that word, as subjective as it is, comes up all the time in security clearance adjudications. Reliability, also a big one. Integrity. And then, of course, judgment. Those three kind of prongs, I would say, are are the most commonly touted attributes that clearance holders are expected to have. And so when one of those is kicked out from under you, it's kind of like the three-legged stool that everything comes crashing down. It's tough, but, you know, have you seen people be able to kind of rehabilitate the ageism issue? Or in your sense, is it kind of, you know, well, you should have known better and that's it. You know, your judgment is sort of fatally... Flawed.
1: I do think the government does look at the totality of circumstances. So if you have, I, I've seen those cases where someone certainly is a more senior person and should have known better, and has been able to mitigate it, showing a lot of other, you know, existential circumstances around why they slipped up and did something. I think the other area where kind of ageism has come up recently, and we talked, we've talked about this before, Sean, is with the Teixeira case and how the young people having security clearances. I know we kind of talked about that last time. And so I've gotten a few questions recently about, hey, is this, isn't this is this a part of a trend? We have reality winner. We have this guy, Edward Snowden. It's only young people who leak classified information. And I'm always like, well, I mean, look, uh, no, not, not actually. Like, we have to remember years before, like, what's right in front of our face. We have Harold Martin even recently. But a lot of cases, if you look at even especially go to the NCSC website and look up their cases for folks who have been worked in defense contracting, you know, sent documents over to China, a lot of folks serving across the military, many of them in that middle-aged kind of experience level. So the espionage issue, as far as ageism, you could honestly say that the government is right to look at people in middle age who are kind of having financial issues. I mean... Midlife crisis is real, people. Things get real legit. You start having a lot of kids. You got a lot of money problems. You got tension. You got relationship problems, man. Life hits hard. I'd give a young person with a clean slate a clearance before I'd give some of the people I know, hitting middle age, man, making some poor life choices. I think that's where it comes across. I think the government is probably right to look at somebody and say, you just have more to lose And more to gain, and so there's just some folks, you know, that judgment, reliability, trustworthiness piece of it. If you're making poor choices around a lot of other issues, are you going to make those around your career?
3: I really was thinking about ageism in the context of being old, right? I mean, that's what typically we think of ageism as discrimination against older people, and and yet you bring up a very good point, which is does it work the reverse way, and and are younger people potentially because of their age and their perceived, you know, inexperience, or, or in this case, uh, you know, potential to have a, you know, a motor mouth and and you know, leak secrets or or whatever the case may be, is is that also harming our ability to recruit well qualified people into national security jobs? And I do think it cuts both ways. I mean, yes, I think there have been some bad press lately uh, for younger folks uh, in the national security community as a result of a few people making bad decisions. Um, But I think on the whole, at least from what I've seen in my law practice, I think the older you get and the longer you've been around this space, the harder it is to recover from a bad judgment call as opposed to being someone younger. I think the the flip side is being younger, 20-somethings are not typically known for good judgment. So, there's probably a wider pool of people who have maybe disqualified themselves temporarily from holding a clearance. But it's not to say that that's, you know, not recoverable. And so I, over the years, represented a lot of younger people who had made mistakes, for example, in their college years. And now they're in their early to mid twenties and they're trying to right the ship and get into their dream job. And, and I would get calls like that all the time. Like, you know, oh my gosh, I'm so frantic and I have so much anxiety. You know, I, smoked weed every day for, you know, my college career, what do I do? And I, I would always tell them, you know, it, you're not completely down and out permanently. You probably just need to give it a little bit of time and you're going to be okay. I suppose as you get older and older, that may be less of a luxury. So at the end of the day, we all make choices. And uh, I guess the best thing I can say is hopefully if they're poor choices, you make them while they're young. <laughs>
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Security, Clearance, and Security. Please note, the information provided on this program is intended as general information only and should not be construed as legal advice. Consult a security clearance attorney regarding your specific situation. Have a question about the security clearance process? Interested in submitting your own topic? Have a question you'd like us to address on a future episode? Drop us an email, editor at clearancejobs.com. Thank you for tuning in to Security, Clearance, and Security. With your host, Lindy Kaiser of ClearanceJobs.com and Sean Bigley. Join us next time as we continue to answer all the questions about security clearance careers you have,
2: but we're too afraid to ask your security manager.